0: listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. I want to begin by taking you back to my high school youth group at Church of the Way. It wasn't a big group, maybe 15 of us in all. And it certainly wasn't in any way a sort of a flashy, high-powered youth program. We would gather in a home on Wednesday evenings. We'd do some singing. It was a blend of the the kind of the folk hymns of, of the 60s and 70s, along with some popular songs of the period that were deemed sort of to be spiritually relevant. Peace Train by Cat Stevens and Get Together by the Youngbloods. It was all very cool as far as we were concerned. And then we would do Bible study. That was bracketed at the beginning and the end by a bit of time to just hang around together. But other than that, it was pretty much it. And we rather liked it. Now, at Church of the Way at the time, much of the preaching was done by two lay preachers, one of whom was a psychiatrist, the author of some popularity. Once or twice a year, that man would join our youth group to do a little bit of teaching. From time to time, he would do a a sort of a preacher on the hot seat, sort of an evening. We could ask any question we might have, no matter what it was. And he'd spend the evening kind of in conversation and response with us. It was, it was good stuff. Now on one of those evenings, this rather smug young fellow raised his question. I have a question about the unforgivable sin. If someone commits the unforgivable sin without knowing it, they're still condemned to hell, aren't they? Worried looks on the teenaged faces all round the circle. Oh my gosh, what is the unforgivable sin? What if we've already done it? And oh! Which is, quite frankly, what that smug young fellow wanted. Because along with being smug, he also had the tendency towards being a bit of a, a spiritual bully. I understand, actually, he went on to a vocation as a pastor... I trust both the smugness and the bullying were kind of weeded out of him along the way. Well, when he asked that question, Dr. White paused, he smiled, and then he said simply, if you're worried about it, you've not committed it. Well, there was some more bluster from that same young guy as he tried to press in deeper. But what if you committed it before you were converted? If Jesus says it's unforgivable, it must be unforgivable. But Dr. White was having none of it. It is quite a statement that Jesus makes, of course. says, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit can never have forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. But the boldness of the statement isn't coming out of nowhere like some sort of freestanding eternal precept that you could kind of write on stone and put on the back of the church wall. As Mark sketches things out in tonight's reading, it's actually part of a kind of a three-step narrative. In the first step, we've been told that Jesus and the disciples are so pressed by the needs of the people that have come to him for help, come to him for healing, come to hear his teaching, that they don't even have time to eat, and that his family has arrived, apparently to do what in AA is known as an intervention. Some people were saying he's gone out of his mind. This is out of control. He's beside himself. This, is, this, this can't be. And that must have had the family worried, so they come to do a, a bit of an intervention. In the second step of the narrative, the scribes arrive at the scene. They come from Jerusalem, educated, credentialed scholars of the temple. And they bring with them an allegation which is meant to undermine Jesus' credibility. They say he has Beelzebul, And by the ruler of the demons, he's casting out demons. Now, remember, if you were here last Sunday, very early in Mark's narrative, he shows a rising tide of hostility and opposition against this carpenter teacher from Galilee. He is, by the powers that be, considered dangerous. He is a threat to good order, to right religion. And so while he does seem to have these gifts to heal and to restore and to cleanse people of spiritual oppression, the gifts must be of some evil or demonic or debased origin. Let that word seep around the crowd. (laughs) Nonsense, says Jesus. That's utter nonsense. Why in heaven's name would Satan, the accuser, the adversary, why would such a a figure be liberating people from Satan? Rather than accusing these people or tangling them up in the very things that destroy them, I'm liberating them. I'm setting them free. I'm restoring them. You're saying that I'm in cahoots with Satan? But that makes no sense because I'm actually undoing all the things that keep people from being whole and alive. Not only that, guys, but here's a little parable for you. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man. Then the house can be plundered. You scribes, you're acting like we should all be afraid, of an evil strong man of the adversary but what you're seeing all around you in the way these people are coming to life what you're seeing all around you you should tell you that the source of evil is currently duct-taped to the dining room chair and he's helplessly watching as I plunder his house as I liberate people or better yet he's watching as his work is undone well Mark says that or something like it. But it's here, in the midst of facing down these scribes, that Jesus speaks about this sin that's beyond forgiveness. He begins his teaching with great generosity. He says, truly I tell you, people will be forgiven their sins. And whatever blasphemies they utter, they will be. But then comes the punchline. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit can never have forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. To which Mark carefully adds a bit of a commentary, almost a footnote. He says, For they had said, He, Jesus, He has an unclean spirit. Here, Matt Skinner New Testament scholar comments, the extraordinary kind of blasphemy of which Jesus speaks, and which he distinguishes from other forgivable blasphemies, is an eternal sin only because it reveals an entirely calcified mind. Such people have seen the works of God up close in Jesus himself, and yet repudiated the transformative power of God's grace. An entirely calcified mind, Skinner calls it, but maybe it was also calcified hearts that prevented Jesus' opponents, his adversaries at this point, from being able to get past their own religious agendas and to begin to see the transformative power of God's grace as it was being incarnated, as it was being made present in their very midst. They're blind by their own agendas. They're calcified, stuck, rock hard. That's the problem. There's also apparently a little bit of calcification happening in Jesus' own family, which brings us to the third step in Mark's three-step narrative. Again, in the first one, the family arrived to restrain him. In the second, the scribes arrived to undermine him. And now in the third, the camera is trained back to his family. Then his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him, the family is outside, so people go in. Jesus, they're here. They, they want you to go out and, and, and talk to them. The subtext, of course, is that they're getting worried that all of this healing and teaching business is beginning to cost him his sanity. So they want to take him away from the crowds, get him safely back home. His response to them is startling and even more so in that ancient cultural context. For he says, But who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother, my brothers, and my sisters. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Now, family bonds are important in our world, right? Right? They really are. They matter. So when they're fragmented, we really feel it. But they were indispensably important in their context. The family is part of what you lived for. You were bound to, across generations, often sharing household, seldom moving from your home community. As N.T. Wright puts it, loyalty to the family was the local and specific outworking of loyalty to Israel as the people of God. As you were loyal to your family in your home, it was a kind of an, almost a sign or a sacrament of your loyalty to Israel and its God. It was that important. So to say something like this in reference to your own mother and brothers and sisters, was absolutely stunning. But evidently, Jesus needed to say this because his family just weren't able to see past their own categories of who he is and what he was about. They couldn't see his calling. They just just wanted to take him home. It's safer at home. It's proper that you're at home. Stop traipsing around the countryside. Family is first. Slow down, fellas. Word has come back from inside the house that he's just said that his true family is made up of those who do the will of God. And when he said it, he was apparently pointing to that ragtag group of his so-called disciples that bunch? He thinks that those smelly fishermen and that low-life tax collector are his true family? He has lost his mind. Or so they must have imagined at the time. Though as things unfold in the Gospels, it's very clear that his mother Mary never entirely steps away, never rejects him. Is in fact there right to the end of his life and on the other side of the resurrection. And in the book of Acts, his brother James is named as one of the leaders of the Jerusalem church. But before they could get there, before they could get there, they had to clear off a bit of their own calcification. They had to come to grips with the fact that while blood ties matter, blood matters, water matters even more. The waters of baptism, the living water that is such a strong image in the gospel according to John. It's water, not blood, that will define this new community, this new family. Now in my youth group, we got all nervous about this business of an unforgivable sin. Terrified that we might have inadvertently done it and would be damned for all time, for heaven's sakes. But what we really should have been challenged by is this idea that the followers of Jesus, the church, is to be family. Now, one what, what level, that's, that's easy, right? We are, as Paul insists, all of us adopted as sons and daughters of God. We are named as God's children, as God's beloved absolutely as gift. At the level of tonight's gospel, though, there's a deeper challenge that gets issued. Namely, that if we are doing the will of God, then we are bound together as brothers and sisters, as new family under this curious reign of God. And that actually makes us responsible for one another, That means we need to find ways to bear one another's burdens, to support one another through those rough patches, and also to feast together when it's feasting time, to celebrate together when there's good things to be celebrated. It means that we have to learn to be honest with each other, tell the truth to one another, and that, that can be tough, it also means we need to be kind. And kindness is a word that's got great depth when you free it from the banality it sometimes gets hit with. It means we have to love one another. Whether or not we all particularly like one another is inconsequential because we're stuck with one another for better or for worse. We're stuck with one another, or at least we are if we take Jesus seriously at his word. And I just happen to think that we should. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. You've been listening to a St. Benedict's Table podcast. For more information on our church or to provide support for our online work, visit us at stbenedictstable.ca.